This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. In this episode, Down Home in Mississippi, I'm thrilled to be back in my home state with Princeton University professor Eddie Gloud, who is also a Mississippi native. Eddie and I will talk to Mike Espy, the former congressman and agriculture secretary, who is now running for the United States Senate. We'll ask him about trade, tariffs, taxes, and what it's like to run for office in the age of Trump. I am especially happy and excited to be here today with my good friend, Professor Eddie Gloud of Princeton, who's from Moss Point. Yes. And also, we welcome the former Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Espy, who's running for Senate in Mississippi. And we are doing this from Mississippi and actually had a former cabinet secretary come down back roads to our great studio in the middle of nowhere. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you know, I've been out a lot of back roads in Mississippi, so I'm I'm very much at home. I was congressman before I became a cabinet secretary. I was a congressman in the second district which was the poorest congressional district in the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, I was there from 1986 to 1992. So I went down a lot of back roads, a lot of dirt roads, and a lot of roads with dead ends. So I'm I'm very comfortable. Thank you. So what made you decide to reenter the political fray in 2018 in Mississippi? The political environment is toxic. Uh, like most people, I'm uh, exhausted. Uh, looking at what happening, what's happening in Washington today, the dysfunction, the disunity, the chaos, the tweets, you know, all the diversions and distractions and nothing serious uh, that will benefit Mississippians or the American people, I think, is really being done. So I decided to uh, come off the bench. I didn't know it would be in March. My friend Thad Cochran fell ill and uh, I thought he might serve the end of his term, and then I'd have an opportunity, have more time to consider a race. But he uh, he resigned in March, uh, like March 10th. So March 11th, March 12th, uh, I had a Come to Jesus meeting, and I met with my wife and said we decided to go ahead and, and do it. Uh, I think that uh, Cochran is known as someone who is thoughtful, someone who is approachable, someone who is thorough, someone who really didn't care. You know, he's a Republican, of course. But if you were a Democrat, you could see him. Uh, so he didn't care about your race, about your party, about your gender, about about your religion. And I'm the same way. When I talk to people, I ask them, what kind of a senator do you want? And more often than not, they tell me we want someone like that Cocker. Mm. You know, approachable, knowledgeable, sincere, somebody who will reach across the aisle and talk to Democrats. And I'm someone who will reach across the aisle and talk to Republicans. And then they said, we want someone independent. Uh, so Thad Cochran sometimes voted against the interests of the Republican administration. He did it quite a lot. And so I tell them that I'm a Democrat. I'm proud to be a Democrat. But in this race, it's a special election. So there's no, I'll never be the Democratic nominee because we won't have one. There's no Democratic nomination. There's no Republican nomination. And uh, so I'm running as Mike Espy, someone who's experienced, someone who's been there before someone who doesn't always vote with the Democratic Party uh, and won't, and someone who's a, a small-eye independent. So I tell them, and I tell my brothers in the party and sisters, I'm just, you know, 
I'm a Democrat, but I'm, Mississippi, I'm a Mississippian first. So whatever comes down the pike, from wherever the idea emanates, I just have to make a simple decision. Is this good for Mississippi and the people here or not? And then I know how I'm going to vote. So they want somebody like a Thad Cochran, and they want somebody who's independent. And uh, there are others in this race that say they're going to vote 100% with President Trump. Well, that's a problem right there. Mm. I, I will never vote 100% with, with anybody. I don't want anybody to tell me what to think or what to say or how to write or how to vote. So that's that's what I'm offering. Experience, calm, maturity, someone hopefully who's knowledgeable about issues that people trust, uh, someone who's been there before, and somebody who knows that he, he will be independent. Mr. Secretary, so yes. in so many ways, we're still living out the fact that 2016 was a change election. And before that, President Obama's two terms, there's a sense in which the electorate is pining for something different. Something isn't working. Folks are working harder. Their wages are flatlined. Definitely. Uh, they can't afford to send their kids to college, and when they do, they're drowning in student loan debt. Uh, it seems that uh, the idea of dreaming, of achieving the American dream, is no longer within reach. And so we see this tumult. We see this unease in the electorate across the country. And it evidenced itself uh, on, on the Republican side, and it's evidencing itself on the Democratic side as we see progressives trying to pull the party, the Democratic Party, more to the left, kind of take it out of the hands of the DLC and the Clintons and those folks. How do you see yourself? You're experienced. Uh, you bring an independence. And all the factors that I just laid out, they are experienced at a, at a whole different level in the state of Mississippi. How do you see yourself fitting within that wave, this sense that people want something different? Yes. Well, it's been a while since I've run for office. I've been out of office for about 20 years. You know, I um, I'd never run for any office until Congress. And even then, they said that you can't win. A black guy can't win in 86. Mm -hmm. And it was in a district uh, professor that was not majority black. It was black. It was 53% black. But when you go to black voting age, it was like 48, 47. And I approach everybody on their own terms. You know, white people get sick and black people get sick. So uh, so in, in this expression, everybody wants to know about the risk of pre-existing illness, you know, it's still being covered. So I speak about that irrespective of race. Uh, we talk about the, uh, uh, you know, about education. I mean, that is the pathway to economic salvation for Mississippi. We have to have an educated workforce. We have to have students who will who will be able to afford to go to college, and then when they graduate from college, they'll be unburdened by student debt. I'm the chairman of the board of a of a nonprofit that's uh, just received the Wall Street Journal Award this past May for being the most innovative nonprofit in the United States in our in our jurisdiction. In our jurisdiction, we go to low income census districts. In the Mid-South, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas. And we say, okay, what can we do to lift the economic aspirations of low-income folks in this district? White and black, doesn't matter. I mean, the baseline is income and credit. And what do you want to do to lift you and your family out of your impoverished situation? So we're doing it through credit unions. You know, commercial enterprise is regulated by the federal government. But we have a special mission to locate credit unions in low-income areas. So we'll go in and we'll say, okay, we want to take you from 
a, a renting situation to a home ownership situation. But we only have so much money. So if you can afford a $100,000 home and you, you're eligible, then we will finance your mortgage for you. And that's moved a lot of people into home ownership capability, which is the primary asset. Because then you can use that to do things later on. And then in areas without, there are many areas missing without doctors. So we'll go in and we'll survey the area and then we'll say, okay, we'll be, we're going to build a congregate medical center in this rural area. And uh, so you so you can go to the doctor without having to go to Jackson. We only have one uh, qualified emergency uh, hospital in Mississippi, one. That's Universal, just in Jackson, right? Universal, yes. Uh, you know, they have ambulatory services and helicopters mm-hmm. and everything flows into them. So now we have rural, you know, diverse rural clinics that we're funding. A lot of folks in Mississippi don't don't eat well, you know, and I, well, I try not. Isn't my, it the food, isn't it 25% of our state has a food crisis? No doubt. We have food deserts. And a lot of them is in are in the uh, congressional district that I that I that I had for six years. So we'll go in because people will go to the service stations to make groceries. You know, they'll go get nabs and fritos and and uh, jerky and and buying a sausage. You know, you know, yeah, and yeah. white bread, and that's what they eat. So we'll go in, and even in urban parts of New Orleans, we build grocery stores. You know, because we have a lot of anonymous investors in us. And then the latter two things I'm really really proud of is um, now we're beginning to put. Um, we we just ended a partnership with Goldman Sachs, and there's a there's a there's a, a program they called Ten Thousand Small Businesses. Mm-hmm. So we got vetted and approved for a huge joint venture with them, where we will vet the small business applicant. So if you have a business that cash flow is a good idea and you need money, then you would come to us. And the last thing, and we just started doing this. What we're doing now is we're taking our credit union branches and putting them inside the public school. So we actually go to a classroom and we outfit it with all the technological, you know, uh, wizardry that we can. And we train the students in how to become credit union tellers. And they would take deposits from their teachers. And so I'll go in and I'll cut the ribbon and I'll tell them, look, at 3 o'clock, you know, perhaps when you leave this school, you have something more in your head, but also something more in your pocket. So we're trying to establish a, a culture of financial literacy. And if I could just tell you, I learned this very early. A lot of people don't know. They know I'm the congressman. Uh, first, it's Reconstruction. They know I was the only first black to ever be sector of agriculture. $86 billion budget, 124,000 employees. They all know that. What they don't know is that in Mississippi this month, my family celebrates its 100th year in business. So my mother's father, named after Thomas Jefferson, his name was Thomas Jefferson Huddleston Sr., he was a son of slaves. His mother and father came from Virginia as slaves. And they settled in Louise, Mississippi, you know, here in the in the Delta. And so uh, he came into prominence. So as he grew up, he started an organization called Afro-American Sons and Daughters. Mm. It was a group economic type organization. You know, they couldn't, you know, the 15th Amendment was still on the books, but of course it was null and void. So, you know, he couldn't speak out. For anyone to register to vote, he couldn't speak out to to give us the franchise. What he could do, and that's all he could do, would be organize economic livelihoods of impoverished people. So he formed it and called it Afro-American Sons and Daughters. He started a newspaper with 100,000 subscribers. And I read every issue. He said, stay in your families. Men, don't desert your children. During World War II, he said, let's join the military. Come back. 
and with more training. He said, let's save by war bonds. He said, let's join social clubs. Let's get organized and keep our community together. Go to church. I read every issue because I'm researching his life for, for a book. And then he said, I'm tired of our women having babies in the cotton field. So he said, give me a dollar for a brick and I'm going to build us a hospital. So in 1924, he built a hospital in our hometown of Yazoo City. And I was born in that hospital in 1953. The hospital that my grandfather built in 1924. And because blacks couldn't go to the main hospitals, this hospital was vibrant until 1924, from 1924 to 1977. And then the Helms Burton that came and black folks go to the hospital. So, so I come from a history, a proud legacy of Thomas Jefferson Huddleston Sr. And it, it runs through me. So I really think the way to lift Mississippi, which in so many ways is either number 50th in certain indexes and number 48 in the others. Look, we got a lot to do. And the only way that we can improve it is to lift the bottom third, the Mississippi Delta, and those around Moss Point, to lift the bottom third. Now, they're white and black. Mm. So I'm looking at it not racial, I'm looking at it in an economic context. So if you lift the bottom third, make sure they can get access to a home. Make sure they get access to a business. Make sure that they have a history of saving. Make sure, you know, they have aspirations of development. Then, then they become, they'll yearn for more education. So then what you say to them, okay, I'm going to try to reduce your student debt. So if you got too much student debt, maybe we could forgive some of it if you go into some kind of an enterprise that lifts Mississippi. And then, uh, you know, so this is what I'm saying on the campaign trail, and it is resonating. It's resonating with African-American listeners and voters and white. And uh, so that's what I'm doing. And that's who I am. That's my platform. This is the way I think we can win. This race goes through the black community. If they don't turn out, I'm losing, right? So I know that. So we're concentrating on that community. But I also can't win without a healthy crossover of white voters. Well, so President Obama needed about 150,000 more votes to win in Mississippi. How tough of of an uphill battle do you have to surpass what he did, essentially? When President Obama ran the second time, 37% 37% of the electorate were African-American, 37%. Now, so of 100% registered voters, 37% turned out uh, and voted for Barack Obama for re-election. There are a great many people who are on the polls now that have not voted since Barack Obama. You know, two cycles have already passed. And we already know who they are. We know where they live. We know what they eat for breakfast. And we know what, what social media platforms that they're on. Uh, and we are we are contacting them every day. This tracks with what I heard when we were doing focus groups with Lord Ashcroft polls back in March in Jackson. And we spoke to African-American voters who were just very disillusioned with the current political class and they weren't motivated. They said and I found this so depressing. They didn't think that any politician was offering anything but rather just enriching themselves. And so they weren't motivated and they said they hadn't felt a reason to go out and vote since Obama. I get that. I get that. I was uh, traveling to Holly Springs, frankly, about a month ago. And I went by a grocery store. I was driving myself then. And uh, so I went to a service station doing what so many do. I got a chicken and a biscuit and a <laughs> cup of coffee. And there was a, uh, a young woman, African-American, she probably 23 years old. And uh, so I went to pay for the meal and she didn't recognize me. Didn't she, there was no indication that she knew me. 
So, you know, uh, I tried to engage her. And she was African-American woman. This was about 6 in the morning. And she's probably one who had gotten up early to make that chicken and biscuit. If you got into Holly Springs, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And, uh, and I said to her, are you a voter? And after 30 seconds, she said, no. She said, I looked at her, and there was a pause. And she said, well, I voted once. And I said, only once? Why? And she looked at me as she was handing me my change. And she said, because after I voted once, nothing happened. I said, wow. I want to go back. And I'd say, okay, what did you want to happen? A $15 minimum wage, which I'm for. Okay, let me help you do my best to get you employment at least for $15. Is it job training? I'm the guy who wants uh, you to enroll in technical school for free. I'm going to work on that. Is it child care if you got children? Because that's usually an impediment many times, particularly for women. You know, what? what is it that I can help you do that makes you feel less uh, less removed from political system and more estranged? What can I do? And, and I haven't talked to her since then, but I just believe that if we can do what I'm trying to do in person via social media and via, um, you know, other organizations like Latasha Brown, mm-hmm. who is Black Votes Matter, I think that I think we're going to do fine. We saw the energy in Alabama yes. around Doug Jones. We saw the energy in Virginia. Uh, we see the energy around Beto O'Rourke in, in, in Texas. And we know that it's not just simply the campaigns. You mentioned uh, Latasha Brown. There's Project South. There are a whole host of organizations. So you're confident that your ground game is going to touch our week? Because Mississippi is often not seen in the light of these other places. Yes. We just interviewed... Uh, we just had a conversation with your, your your one of your opponents, and there's a sense in which he says, you know, to think about Mississippi sending a Democrat to to Washington D.C. is in effect a pipe dream. This is a red state; it is conservative to the core. But you seem to have a faith that it's not about red or blue; it's about right. Do you think that you can actually make an intervention with the help of these other organizations yes. and bringing folk out? We could not just win with Democrats. We could not just win with a smattering of independents. We also have to appeal to open-minded Republicans. And we've done focus groups with them. Uh, the first thing I did after we decided to run to offer ourselves was to do focus groups with white women who lean Republican. We did four focus groups. Jackson, uh, Reagan County, which is heavily Republican. Gulf Coast and Oxford. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't there, but I read the reports. And we had white women leaning Republican from from the lower income, all up the income scale. And the results were quite, quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. It gave me confidence. They are exhausted. Well, do you think that part of that exhaustion, Donald Trump has been exhausting on issues of race and this, his misogyny? This is This is what I'm saying. They're exhausted with the dysfunction, the chaos, the acrimony, the reality show. They're exhausted. Now, on the lower income scale, I could probably forget that. But as you go up the income scale uh, in that demographic that that were that, that came into our focus group scenario, I am quite uh, I'm quite optimistic that with our message of reasonable outreach, someone who just just will not vote with the Democratic Party one hundred percent of the time. 
someone who believes in uh, economic viability for all people, someone who will reach out to everybody irrespective of race and party and sexual orientation. They want that message. They want that message. So what I'm just trying to do is look at what I can help you to do to make your life better as a federal official. And, and that cuts across race and, frankly, appeals to lower income. I heard uh, the gentleman that you uh, mentioned uh, in your question. I didn't hear the entire interview, but he made comments. For our which, listeners, it's Chris McDaniel. Yeah, really, really disappointed me um, about people taking handouts for 100 years. And he even made uh, comments about me, which were completely untrue. This is a political season. We're in campaign and people like the red meat at others. I, I get that. Um, but uh, you got to be truthful. You, you, you got to you got to humble yourself and say things that are that are truthful. Well, that's such a problem in the current political climate. When you have Donald Trump just this past week, he tweeted that the deaths in Puerto Rico were created by Democrats. Right. And, and that's what I mean when I say people are exhausted with the reality show. So. 16 deaths in Puerto Rico would it, it approach 3,000. I mean, all these things are factual and can be checked in a matter of seconds. So there are lots of things like that that are just that are just untrue. And people already know that they're untrue. So people like me, we don't really have to call it out so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not mentioning his name at all because I'm not running against President Trump. But the thing is, the more he comes to Mississippi and the more he talks, it's probably better for me. Uh, because that that agitates the other side of those who maybe uh, would not be compelled to come out except for showing him that he, he'll be opposed. Well, and one of our themes is clearly our title of our podcast, Words Matter, yes. Facts Matter. Yes. You have to have public policy that's rooted in facts. Yes. And you're a former agriculture secretary, yes. so you know a lot about agriculture and trade. Yes, one of Mississippi's top exports, yes, soybeans. I mean, absolutely. this is our our entire economy is an agricultural based yes. economy, and so when agriculture is doing well, our yes. state is doing well. Yes. What do you think of Donald Trump's trade war with China? I hate it, frankly. Before the war was started, you know, before we threw out the first volley, I already wrote about it. I want everybody to go to my website, SP for Senate. And I wrote an article called Be Careful What You Ask For. Be careful what you ask for. I wrote it in April of this year. And I foresaw uh, what was going to happen. So you mentioned soybeans. There were rumors that President Trump was going to initiate a 25% tariff on aluminum and steel, primarily because he now as we're approaching the midterms, he wants to uh, brick, brook support from Ohio and Pennsylvania, or where those commodities are prominent okay so he's going to impose a tariff on aluminum and steel well so you know what's going to happen automatically china was going to impose a reciprocal tariff on products that we care about that that would hurt our farmers in mississippi soybeans so i wrote about that i said don't you know when you throw this out there's going to be uh, a a return volley uh against soybeans which is our number three cash crop in mississippi and china is our number one soybean market in the world We've already always been competing against Brazil. So why would you give Brazil an opening to to create to to fill a vacuum in a market that we're seeding from a policy that doesn't make any sense? So I wrote about this back in April, and then I foresaw the next step. I said, okay, if you do this, the repercussions on farmers like those 
in Mississippi who grow soybeans will be tremendous. The income among soybean farms in Mississippi is, is at a 10-year low just from this policy, which I think is very unfortunate. So I went a step further. I said, okay, uh, he made a statement that I'm going to take care of the farmers. So I gamed it out. I said, the only way that the president can take care of the farmers is to give them a subsidy, mm-hmm. to give them a Band-Aid, to give them something likely from the Commodity Credit Corporation. Now, I was the president of the Commodity Credit Corporation, which is a bank in the bowels of the USDA. It has a relationship with the Congress. It says that whatever we spend from the Commodity Credit Corporation is replenished automatically from the next year's congressional budget. You don't even have to ask for it. They just say how much you spend and replace it. So it's an easy place to go and get money, which is where I knew that would like to be the place. But look, so that's what he did. This $19 billion that he's proposing to give to the farmers to support them during this volatile period based on the policy that he's imposing, which I think is short-sighted, is coming from the Commodity Credit Corporation. Now, this $19 billion, when it's given to the farmers, comes from a deficit spending. You're not going to print the money. you got to borrow the money. And so the interest on the new $19 billion spending, the interest on this debt is given to China that buys the Treasury note. So China already that's buying soybeans now from Brazil based on a strategy, which I think, again, is unfortunate. They, they, they have a triple benefit. They're getting paid from the interest on the $19 million that the president given to farmers based on the policy that he imposed. The farmers are losing the soybean market in China, and they are not, and this is the most serious thing of all, they do not want the handout. They call me, they text me, they say, keep on going, Mike, keep on going, Mr. Secretary, because I'm calling it out. It was, a, it was a wrong policy. When they grow the soybeans, they want to sell the, glo- the soybeans into the global market. One-third of the soybeans are consumed in the country. Two-thirds must be sold on the global market. And we're losing every day those markets because of this strategy. So I said to the other two candidates, look, a senator, man or woman, must be able to see around the corner. You've got to be able to see around the corner. I can see around the corner because I've been there and I called it out in April, even though the policy was imposed in August. And it's just wrong. And the reply from one of the candidates, she said, she's concerned, but... She trusts the president to do what's right. She's 100% with the president. Mm-hmm. And then I replied, I would never be 100% in the pocket of anybody. So we're beginning to see a little bit of your agenda in this conversation. So we, we know already that you're for the living, you're for $15 a wage, a living wage. Yes. We have an idea around education that you're for free tech, voca- vocational and tech schools. I am. We have, we have an idea about your free trader in terms of your trade policy. No doubt. And the like. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about criminal justice, and let's talk a little bit about foreign policy more generally with regards to Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the like. I do it. Because as a senator, you're you're going, particularly as a senator, as a a black senator from Mississippi, you're going to represent something uh, much more symbolically and substantively. So you know that the question of criminal justice has kind of convulsed the country. Uh, particularly with uh, after Ferguson and and uh, yes. we have countless examples. Right. So how might you uh, respond to the reality yes. of of racial bias in in, in policing? Um, and and then the second thing is that we see what's going on. They closed, and this is take us 
abroad, from closing the mission, the Palestinian mission, to uh, the policies with regards to Afghanistan right. and, and, and Iraq and That's Iran. That's a lot. These are a lot of questions right. all, this, all across see, the world. This is what happens when I bring along <laughs> a Princeton professor. Let's, so let, let's, let's, this, let's talk about this. Yeah, because, because what happens is that you're going to be asked to make them, and, and Democrats are taking stances right now, and it's very clear. I'm ready to I want, I want to hear what you have to say. Gotcha, gotcha. We have too many men and women in prison who really uh, didn't, don't belong there. Uh, the jails are too full. And so what I, uh, for people who don't belong there, so whether it's inadequate defense, whether it's a matter of um, not knowing certain things, if it's a matter of um, of uh, ineffective counsel, first thing I want to make sure is everybody has competent counsel. The second thing is that I would like to decriminalize certain offenses that are nonviolent, and those are a lot of drug offenses. Mm-hmm. And then I'd like to have diversion programs and uh, education programs so that they'll never end up there again so don't worry you, about the foreign policy part just that, hey. that's good that's good right no there. foreign policy that's fine um I've, what do you think of president trump's foreign policy so far and do you think that congress should be providing it's more short of a check it's short-sighted i do not favor the current action of this administration when it came to terminating the iran nuclear group I, I think it was wrong uh we had a chit there we had a chit there we had something there to make sure that we could enforce the fact that we didn't want to become a nuclear power, and we, we took it away voluntarily, and that was wrong. Uh, the same thing to moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That's wrong, because if we want to have a two-state solution one day between the Palestinians and Israel, now we're voluntarily removing that shit. It is wrong. You know, most people ask me about soybeans <laughs> and not and not about the PLO and, and Hamas and all of that. And I know I'm taking way too much of your time because you're busy on the campaign trail. And I'm speaking trail too long, man. In the active yes, heat, the you know, yes. the, of the race. But I guess to close, what do you want the country and Mississippians to know about your campaign and why you think you can make a difference? Three things. One is that experience matters. I'm the most experienced person in the race by a long shot. I served in Congress successfully three terms. I resigned to become Secretary of Agriculture. I served there successfully. I served on the Budget Committee. I served on the Select Committee on Hunger with Mickey Leland, God rest his soul. And I served on the Agriculture Committee. I was Vice Chairman at one time of Cotton, Rice, and Sugar. And those are indigenous crops, indigenous Mississippi. So I've been there. That's number one. Number two, uh, I have a history of reaching across the chasm. I do not believe that everyone on the other side is stupid. I don't believe in making intemperate remarks based on some narcissistic tendency I might have. I, I believe in listening to everyone, believing that everyone has value. And yes, I'm a Democrat. I am. But I'm not going to be there 100% of the time. So I want everybody to know that whatever idea emanates from whatever quarter, I'm going to listen to it. If it's positive for Mississippi, I will be with that. If it's not positive for Mississippi, I will not be with that. And the third thing is that this race is a GOTV race. It's a get-out-the-vote race. We have to be exceptionally well-organized. We have to organize all communities, including the African-American community. And we are doing our best to do that. We would like more donations, you know, because this race for me didn't start until March. Other people had two years, six years. We started in March. So, so we're behind there in fundraising, but it's actually catching up after the George Will article and other things, the BEA endorsement. So I want them to know that we're coming. 
We're coming, and we're coming with goodwill. Uh, everything we talked about today, the living wage, the rural hospitals, the end in the brain drain, the making sure that we can have technical schools and economic opportunities Mississippi must have in order to advance. I'm for removing the Confederate flag. I've said it because to me it's an economic benefit to do that. The Confederate flag is 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 still stands as a Mississippi icon. But do you know, Eddie and Elise, that that flag is not flown at any university or college in Mississippi today. It's not. And every school took an independent action to take the flag down. Now, why is that? Why would universities be motivated to take the flag down? Because they know in order to become a world-class state, we have to have uh, symbols that are forward-thinking and not and not not a genuflection to bygone day. They know that we have to attract world-class academicians, world-class teachers, world-class students, and it's very simple to remove an icon that has hateful memories. So, so now the schools have taken it down. Now, until the state takes down the official flag, the best symbol and the best signal to the world that Mississippi is changing is to elect Mike Espy on November the 2nd. Thank you so much for your time today, Secretary. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eddie, for the great assist and guest visit. My pleasure. Right now, I have to tell you about an amazing new service I found called FrameBridge. They make it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to travel photos that are on your phone. I'm particularly obsessed with this service right now because I'm in the middle of a home renovation and have been trying to find great art for my walls, but it's super expensive to go to a store. And it's also quite annoying to have to lug around your poster or your family photo or your piece of art. So you can just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo and it makes it a lot easier. Or you can put your special item in their own packaging and safely mail it in to them. You can preview your item online in any frame style and they have a ton of options and you can also get free recommendations from the in-house talented designers. Then they custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. Instead of all the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all the shipping is free. Plus our listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use our code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S. I'm looking forward to framing a custom watercolor of my overly spoiled corgi bobby sneakers and put it in our wall on a huge place of prominence just because the dog doesn't already dominate our household enough. So you can follow my lead and get started today. Frame your photos are just the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, or special events. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code WORDS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com, promo code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S. And one final word. Ever since he descended that escalator and announced his candidacy for president, I have found plenty about Donald Trump to be offensive. In fact, I found him offensive on almost every level. I've been offended by Donald Trump's blatant racism. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. I've been offended by his misogyny. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. I've been offended by his attacks on the First Amendment. Because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. 
I've been offended by Donald Trump's xenophobia. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And I've really been outraged by Donald Trump's separation of young children from their parents. How chilling is that? But as is often the case with Donald Trump, just when you think you've hit bottom, when you think you couldn't be any more surprised, offended, or outraged, well, Donald Trump found a new and creative way to offend me, a way I had never considered or even thought possible. Donald Trump offended me as a Southerner. I'll be the first one to say that there are some things you can criticize about the South, most notably our horrible history and the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. But making fun of all Southerners, no matter your race, by calling us dumb for the way we talk? An insult on one Southerner is an insult to all Southerners, no matter how you might have voted. So for a Yankee from New York City to make fun of how an entire region talks? Bless your heart, Donald Trump. That's how a Southerner preps to throw out an insult. And I find what Donald Trump said insulting. Because except for Virginia, Donald Trump swept the South. Of the nearly 63 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, more than 23 million of those votes came from the South. It is far and away the part of the country where Donald Trump is most popular. So why would Donald Trump risk alienating more than one-third of his voters, a significant portion of his most hardcore base? Ah, pure rage and irrational anger. Donald Trump is beyond furious with Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. Now that's a good Southern name for properly recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Trump tweeted that he's even angry with Sessions for just doing his job. It seems that prosecuting any Republican elected officials, regardless of their actual wrongdoing, Donald Trump thinks that, nope, his attorney general shouldn't be doing that. So that's why when we found out from Bob Woodward's new book that Trump has berated Sessions and made fun of him in front of staffers, speaking in an exaggerated Southern accent to disgrace Staff Secretary Rob Porter, that just was a little annoying to me. According to Woodward, Trump said this about Sessions. He's this dumb Southerner. He couldn't even be a one-person country lawyer down in Alabama. Now, I've never been a big fan of Jeff Sessions, and I think his policies as attorney general have been, quite frankly, despicable, from child separation to Jeff Sessions' opposition to criminal justice reform. But, you know, one of the things that doesn't bother me about Jeff Sessions is the way he talks. With this, though, Trump reveals what he really thinks of the good men and women of the South. I'd like for voters down South and elsewhere in the country, when you go to the polls in November, keep in mind that you are voting for a check on an increasingly unhinged and irrational Donald Trump, a man who doesn't actually respect you or share your values, a man who belittles people like us behind closed doors the way we talk. William Faulkner, you know, that guy from my neck of the woods who won a Nobel Prize for literature, he had some wisdom that seems quite applicable to Donald Trump. Talk, 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 the utter and heartbreaking stupidity of words. Faulkner's words sure weren't stupid, so let's give William Faulkner in his lovely accent the final word. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I feel that this award was not made to me as a man, but to my work, the life work and the agony and sweat of the human spirit, not for glory, but but to make out of the material of the human spirit something which was not there before. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.